This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 574 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Brandon Webb. Now, Brandon is a former Navy SEAL. He is an author and also the man behind the media company SoftRep. So we discuss a host of topics from his time in Navy search and rescue, working alongside Chris Kyle and Glenn Doherty, what really happened in Benghazi, veteran mental health, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it more and more visible and therefore easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brandon Webb. Enjoy. So I was saying about my active shooter experience, I was, this was the summer, the end of the summer after the Paris terrorist attacks. Um, I was on a plane from Germany, I think Frankfurt to JFK. And we arrived in the afternoon. I got off the plane. Um, I was in the first group. I was upgraded to business and off the first group of the plane into passport control. Then these guys in yellow jackets stopped us and said, Hey, you guys got to hold here. There's a, there's something, there's a security threat in terminal one. I think we're at terminal seven and we're kind of sitting there going, okay, what's, what's up? 10 minutes goes by and they're like, Oh, there might be an active shooter in terminal one. We're like, wow, that's crazy. And, and the look of like terror on these, these passengers from Germany are like, welcome to America. Right. Then they let us go. I get into the passport control. I get my, I joke about the officer. I'm like, Oh, this is kind of crazy world we're living in. He's like, yeah, no kidding. And then I get to the baggage. One of the few times I checked the bag and I'm waiting for my bag. And all of a sudden I hear screaming, six officers run into the luggage, like the baggage area at JFK. There's like, you know, massive carousels. And by now, there's like three, 400 people because all these planes from Europe had dumped in and offloaded passengers. There's like a few hundred people at least in the, in the queue. And these officers come running in, guns drawn, and scream, there's an active shooter run. And I remember this, no shit, run for your lives. Like that was the plan. And I was like, this is insane right now what's happening. I look around and it was pure herd panic. These, the freaking security barriers blew up. People ran onto the tarmac, like onto the airport tarmac. And I took cover behind this big concrete column. And this lady was above me, like handshaking um, this, I don't know if she's security officer or airport police. 
then I was like, this is madness. And I was like, okay, you got to get off the X. Right. So I, I ran, I ran, um, outside on the tarmac, like now with the planes and with these passengers kind of waiting to see what's going on. And the, this police officer was there and I said, like, Hey, what's going on? And he's like, Oh man, this is, you know, we got a shooter on the loose. And he's like, you know, he's like, can you help me get these people back inside? I said, like, look, I don't think putting them back into an unknown area with this, where the threat is, is a very good idea. It's like, here we have options. And I started talking with him and three or four passengers overheard me and they're like, what are you going to do? And I said, like, I'm getting the hell out of here. So I, I, so they're like, we're coming with you. So we, we went underneath the airport baggage um, where, where they kind of drive the carts in and to the, to the fence line, which was not maybe a hundred yards. And there's the fence, right? And there's all the cabs stopped. Everyone's kind of looking out of the cars because all hell's breaking loose. And I said, look, uh, I'm hopping the fence and I'll throw my jacket over the barbed wire and help you guys over. We had one woman with a baby. And so as I'm, and they're like, well, you go first. We want to see how you do it. So I throw my, my Arcteryx, black Arcteryx jacket. And the other thing is like, I'm dressed now like black shirt, black pants. And I'm, I'm huffing over the fence and I see this guy like probably from Jersey running at me thinking I'm like the terrorist, right? I have a black <laughs> backpack too. And I get over the other side. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm helping these passengers out. I'm ex-military. And he's like, oh, okay, okay. So we help about five or six passengers over. I hop in a cab and I, I go to downtown and I tell the guys like, look, the roads are going to be closed. Like, I was like, I would suggest like getting out of here as quick as possible. So we, as soon as we left, roads shut down, and I was watching it on TV back in my New York apartment. And it turns out what happened was somebody phoned in a threat. Then there was a there was a race with Usain Bolt, so everyone was yelling, and I, and so it just it amplified this like air of panic. Then the officers, one of them had an accidental discharge. And so that made it even worse. And it just, the panic spread throughout the airport. But I can tell you this, the, the sense of helplessness was, was real. And I was like, there's nothing I can do other than take care of myself right now. Pe parents were leaving their children. People were screaming and yelling. Some people just sat down and, and closed their eyes. And, and it was crazy to see the, the reactions of, of people and that's when I started carrying that this um, that bulletproof insert for backpacks, um, and we started selling them. And I gave them to, I gave them to my own kids because I was like, "Wow, this is this is crazy." But that was that was my experience, and it, it was a it was a very eye opening experience. That's why I really try to avoid subways in major cities at rush hour. Because when you're in that herd, you can't do anything. You're just going to get like run over if you don't have enough room to kind of escape. But anyway, that's my that's my active shooter story. But it was pretty surreal. Yeah, well, we, we started recording, uh, started talking before we hit record. So this is where we kind of jumped in here. But what changed me? So I came from the UK and I had guns. You know, I grew up on a farm. We had shotguns and um, I actually had one under my bed because we lived down a very dark, long, long drive. Um, but you know, it's not rife there. And it's very interesting because you look at post-World War II, 
there were guns everywhere in Europe, you know. So it's it's interesting to see how they made that happen to to where they stopped it. And obviously, we're having a lot of knife crime at the moment, which again, I think there's a mental health element to all this violence that you know isn't discussed usually. But uh, you know, they did a very good job, and you didn't ever see guns they didn't ever see shootings normally um i remember seeing one pistol my whole life in the uk of some little wannabe thug that came into a pub and started you know acting up but uh that was it so when i came over here i struggled with the idea of of gun ownership until the code red i actually wrote about in my book um but you know i was there dropping off my son after a medical appointment and then they all start you know not panicking. I got to say kudos to that school. They were very, very professional. Those code red drills have worked. But I'm in this kind of office supply closet with a couple of students and some teachers and looking at this paper guillotine. Okay, I'm going to try and snap the blade off and at least I can try and use that. But that feeling of helplessness and, you know, I'm a responder. I'm somewhat trained in martial arts. You know, I'm slightly one tick above the average person. But the lack of communication is what made them so vulnerable. But that yeah. really changed my mind on the gun ownership part because today, right now, there are so many that, yeah, you are so incredibly vulnerable. With, and I have, um, you know, I, I bought a 511 um, vest and rather than just buy the weight because I'm just using it for exercise, I'm like, well, I may as well buy the ballistic plate. So that sits in my trunk too because you never know. So, but yeah. we are in such a conundrum with this ownership thing. And the moment you mention that, it's like, you know, it's like the COVID thing. Everyone st stands on one of two sides. Oh, yeah. And then the poor, for example, children that are suffering these events get no resolution while these two groups of adults are ready to murder each other over the ownership issue. I think, I think that it's going to take the baby boomers plus dying off for for it to for America to be ready to have some common sense common sense laws and rules whatever the hell you want to call them around firearms ownership that that yeah respects the second amendment but put some common sense rules and regulations in place to limit these these school shootings and I'm all for that um, the you know, the issue people just like you said, it just becomes this, this topic that's like talking about abortion, COVID, gay marriage, it just, it's this hot button. But look, you know, at, at one time, it was constitutionally legal to own slaves. Okay, we've matured, and the world moves on and times change. So I really think that the, you know, that, that, that we're ready for some for some change, but it's going to take that demographic dying off because I look at my own kids, my kids are older, they're all teenagers. And yeah, my son thinks it's cool to shoot guns, they play video games, but they don't really care. You know, they're they don't have the same passion about it as, you know, a lot of a lot of Americans do. And then, yeah, the the other issue to your point is there are so much firearms out there in the in the in the population that yeah you you do want to arm yourself you know you think okay well I've you know at least maybe I have a, a gun in the house for for protection but I always I mean my the self protection tool that I tell people the most to get is that 
high powered thousand lumen pocket flashlight because you can take it anywhere. You can take it to sporting events. You can take it on the airplane. Um, I have one pretty much all the time myself because, you know, someone that was trained to use a gun, you know, that's probably the last thing I want to do is get in a gunfight with somebody. And, and in most cases you can't even use it anyway, like in a crowded, if you're, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in New York for work. I'm not, and we've seen this, the NY, the NYPD opened up on a armed person in Times Square and they shot like six civilians because you don't think like bullet path, right? The bullet goes through the bad guy. If, if you hit him, I don't think these police officers even hit, hit anything, but they shot six innocent people. Um, and if you do hit a bad guy, that bullet's going to keep going until it stops. So you have an issue with bullet path. Um, you know, you're not going to use a gun on a crowded subway. And, and what's maddening is that I, I have um, a lot of friends on the New York police department. Unless you're a supervisor, you can't even carry less than lethal. So all these police officers on the subway and with guns that don't have an alternative to deadly force, which is met, which is totally insane to me. Like they should give them tasers. The supervisor should have a gun, you know, it should be the opposite. But, but to, to our point we were talking about earlier, I think that there, there are some common sense rules that you can put in place that respect the second amendment and this, and the, the, cultural importance of firearms ownership, which really is, you know, is unless you're experienced it in America, people don't understand it. Um, but anyway, yeah, not to go down the rabbit hole on, on firearms ownership. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were chatting as well about Tim Kennedy, who's been on the show a few times. Yeah. And he basically, you know, got canceled. I'm using air quotes here by certain groups yeah. because he wasn't aggressive enough about, you know, guns. He he was talking about moderation and, like you said, some sort of parameters. Yeah. And I found that even yeah. you know, as a, as an Englishman going to Gander Mountain, you know, and and I own a you know pistol, and I'd love to get a, an AR. I want to do some of those tactical games. Um, but you know, I'm I'm there watching eight year olds playing with um, you know, fifty cal's in in a sporting, and I'm like, what the hell are you going to shoot with a fifty cal? Whatever you do is not going to be there anymore. So you're not going to be able to eat it, <laughs> you know. So so there there yeah. there are lines, and then the other side is the mental health element. But countries like Norway have a huge amount of guns, and they have almost no gun violence. So then you know, what are we doing culturally that we're getting our police officers executed in the streets? So we're having innocent civilians shot. You know, like we just did the other day, the young girl in the store that was killed. Um, you know, while the the you know the the police officer was defending himself. You know, so this 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 perpetual vicious circle that we're in. People have to st like advocate for the actual victims rather than you know die on their sword on these 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 extremes that they've created because there's moderation in every single topic. And and the other thing is the NRA, which you know historically has been a very good organization and, and providing people with one of the few organizations in America where you can get really good firearms training. The, the issue I had and where I got, I had a similar situation that Tim Kennedy did was I went after Wayne LaPierre, the, the guy who's in charge of the NRA, because this was a lobbyist that kind of took over the organization doesn't you know you look at the guy i'm like this guy wouldn't i wouldn't want 
to leave him alone with my kids for five minutes, let alone shoot next to him on a firing range. Um, and he's like made this organization. He's, you know, led it and kind of radicalized it, which is, which is a shame because the NRA does a lot of good. It could be an organization that leads this conversation that we need to have in America about, you know, what's the future of firearms ownership look like, especially as, as we transition to directed energy, lasers, all these, you know, then the new era of, of, um, you know, weapons or whatever you want to call it. But it's, it's not, it's just like, you know, it's, it's become like the Sierra club rather than, you know, Sierra club has a great mission, just like the NRA has a great mission to educate people around firearms ownership and safety. But just like the Sierra club, they've turned into this like politically radicalized organization. And, and it's all about, you know, infuriating the, the base so you can get more money and, and, and it's just this like vicious cycle and nobody wants to compromise. And that's, I think Winston Churchill called it, you know, a radical is someone that won't change the, will never change the, their mind and can't change the subject. Right. <laughs> so that's the issue. But I got the NRA came after me big time. And I, I realized, okay, is this a fight? And this was probably, you know, seven, eight years ago. And I was like, wow, do I really want to pick this fight? Like, is it really worth, you know, me dragging my, having my kids get drugged through the mud and all this stuff? I said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll put that on the shelf for now and <laughs> maybe think about it in the future. But it was bad. Like, they stood up Facebook pages because I'm originally from Canada. They called me a Canadian socialist. Like, it was crazy. But I think they felt very threatened that the SEAL sniper was going after the head of the NRA. And I had a lot of, um, we were talking about earlier about the majority being, or the silent majority in the middle. I had a lot of people message me and like, wow, you should run for, you know, one of the directors and, you know, you, you make a lot of sense. So I, I think eventually we'll get there, but it seems like right now it's, it's a, it's just a hot topic. And then you got this, you know, the same people that complain about the cancel culture out there canceling people as well. <laughs> it's just ironic. Well, the other the other side of the conversation, I think just before we transition to your timeline and your birth in Canada, um, that Tim talks about a lot is the the fitness element. What I see with a lot of people is there's no no effort on the fitness side, no effort to learn a martial art. So, you know, all these tools that you can de-escalate but they've got an absolute vault full of guns, you know? So again, it's, it's that education piece. Like, why are you owning a gun? If you, if you're doing it for the protection of yourself and your family, then there needs to be as much, if not more time devoted to your physical fitness and training than there is your gun ownership piece. Because as I've heard over and over again in the middle, uh, excuse me, the law enforcement here, the fit, well trained officers that have been on the show, are the ones that go hands on the least. Yeah. 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 I think if you really have been through any type of extensive firearms training, you realize why it should be an absolute last resort. Um, and, and also 
you know, you realize how most people, even that have the vault full of guns, really aren't capable of, of using it in a high stress situation. You know, we did the, this, um, I talked about it in my first book, The Red Circle, which is actually, everyone thinks the red circle is a sniper's scope or a reticle, but it's actually this hooded box drill we used to do where the hood comes down covers you you're fully kitted out with an mp5 or an m4 and you get your secondary hood goes up and you're just thrown into the scenario um and i remember the first time i just got popped in the face and i was like whoa and i shook it off like shot the guy like and you know guys holding the girl hostage shot him in the head and then boom reset and you do this over and over and over for 45 minutes and they videotape everything and you're just dripping in sweat but that's the kind of conditioning it takes to really react in this high stress situation. And you see guys on video, like they, they freeze, they shoot the hostage, they do all this crazy stuff. Um, but it takes a lot to really use a gun to defend yourself in a, especially in a high stress situation where you have maybe yourself or family involved. But yeah, I'm a, you know, we talked about it. I love that high powered flashlight, the thousand lumen plus. You, know, you carry it, carry it in your pocket. Give it to your wife or girlfriend. Carry it in the purse. But it's an excellent, you know, safe take anywhere on the airplane defense tool. Because in the daylight, you'll flash blind somebody, and it just creates enough space, right, to to kind of deescalate or de you know the conflict. And at night, you'll you'll like blind somebody for minutes because um, it's so bright but yeah um we'll see <laughs> we'll see what happens it's it's a weird time in america right now i'll tell you this i've sent my oldest son to scotland for for college my daughter will go to probably netherlands because i just don't want them in the u.s dealing with all this you know this weird it's a very weird time in america right now culturally um and yeah, I just said, you know what, you don't have to, you can kind of remove yourself from this and just go to Europe, make some international friends, learn another language. Plus, you know, both my, my, my oldest son and daughter, very, very academic, 4.3 GPA, honor roll. My son was a debate champion, you know, by all means, he almost scored about a perfect score on his ACTs. He should have went, had his pick of any school he wanted in the u.s and it's not the case because he's he's a white kid and his dad makes a decent living um so i just said you know what go to europe <laughs> um, and and i don't have to fuck worry about them getting shot in the classroom as well so um yeah it's it, it's it's weird because i'd never it's i love america I, i'm you know, I served 13 years in the military, but I would, it's strange for me as a, you know, a patriot to look at America right now and go, we want, we have really big problems and I want my kids out of here. I don't want them dealing with the, the college, you know, environment where, you know, there are teachers in the classroom, which happened to my youngest son telling them him that he's this, he was, imagine a 12 year old kid and a teacher telling him in a classroom full of his peers that he's a victim of white privilege. Like that's insanity to me. Like how could you, we, we complained about the teacher and she had like a bunch of complaints, but they're so shorthanded. What can you do? But I'm like, 
you're really going to like dump that on a 12 year old kid. Um, and that's the kind of crap that, that I'm seeing at some really good schools in America. These are the good schools. <laughs> um, I don't want my kids anywhere around it. So, Well, it's interesting as well because what I found really was one of my best education was just travel. Just going to different countries, yeah. being around people from different countries that are brought up differently. And that's one of the focuses of the show now. You know, I've had, you know, prison governors from Norway and you know, educators from Finland and all these, these places around the world. Portugal's, you know, drug uh, decriminalization. I had the guy that spearheaded that. Incredibly successful programs. And you know, the problem is when you beat your chest and you say that your country is the greatest on, in, in the world, that basically is an excuse to not put any effort in whatsoever. And when you say we can do things better, the, the knee jerk is, well, if you don't like it, go back to Canada, go back to England, you know, whatever. And it's like, or fucker, think about this. If you actually really value your country, you will question things because you know it can be better, especially when you've been a SEAL, when you've been a firefighter and you've seen behind the curtain and the obesity epidemic and the violence and the school shootings and the addiction, it, you know, there's so much more that we can do better. So when you question it, you know, there's either that, you know, like I said, knee jerk telling you to shut up or we can actually collectively go, you know what, you're right. We do need to do better in, in gun control and mental health in all these areas because there are countries around the world where, as you said, their citizens, their school children are not in fear of being murdered on the streets, murdered in the classroom. And that, that should be a giant red flag for the way we're doing things now, left and right. I can't stand either of them, just yep. to be very clear. Yeah, America is a great country, but it's not the greatest country, in my opinion. I, I've traveled extensively. Um, it has. We have major, major problems. The, we, we have... The good news is, is that we can fix it. It's not too late, but it's getting really, really bad. I mean, we live in an extremely wealthy country and we have, we're poisoning our population with a terrible food supply chain. You know, the fruit doesn't taste like fruit. It tastes like cardboard. We have this obesity epidemic in the middle America. We can't even give basic healthcare services to families that need it and and most emergency room trips will bankrupt you know the average american um, so we can't even take care of our population with food with health care education we can't even provide a basic education without putting you know young students in massive debt and it's the, i've seen the predatory lending practices very easy for somebody to go Take, if they get into a decent school, they can take out a bunch of loans for you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they graduate and they're just screwed. And so, you know, it's just America. It's we're a rich enough country that we should provide just the basics, you know, level of support and safety net for our population, and we just don't do it. And, and our income cap, our income gap looks now today just like russia and latin america and and so you know it's still a great country we have the ability to change but you know we're voting by filling in bubbles in the in 2022 that's insane we all bank on our phones why can't we vote on our phones um but it just goes on and on and and it's you know the good news is i belong to 
um, the Young Presidents Organization and just finished this program at Harvard Business for Entrepreneurs. And it is very much a conversation that business leaders are having is, okay, our government, we're in this situation, the government's not going to solve this problem on our own. And I think that's why you're seeing this massive increase in, uh, they call it ESG. It's basically the environmental, social, and I forget the G stands for, but it's, it's basically business going, okay, we have to be part of the solution. We can't just sit back, pay the tax, and expect that the government is going to use the tax to solve the problems. They're just not doing it. And, and to be honest, like, you, know, you look at Afghanistan, like, how do we, how do we go 20 years in Afghanistan with, with no strategy, um, which is just a disaster. And then you, know, you, you had Sean Lake on the podcast. who's a good friend of mine. We both lost a, a very good friend of ours in Benghazi what the hell we're in, why the hell were we even in Benghazi? You know, we, we destabilized a country, which is still a failed state since we, we helped destabilize it in 2012. What was the strategic purpose and value of that? Um, it's just kind of muddling. It's, we have this like schizophrenic foreign policy with no real, real plan behind it. And you end up with a failed state of Benghazi, Americans dead, we're in North Africa. People don't even know we're in North Africa. We, the site that I run, softrep.com, we published this video of, of, of four Americans dying in an ambush in Niger. People were outraged that we had the like nerve to publish this video. And the parent, one of the fathers emailed us and said, thank you. It's like, the government wouldn't tell me how my son died. He's like, as hard as that video was to watch, at least I got to see what the hell happened. And you guys had, you know, the balls to publish this thing. Um, and so anyway, I'm on a full, full rant right now. No, please run away. Like, yeah. The foreign policy thing is really, I struggle with cause, and I think a lot of veterans are struggling with why did I, you know, why did I see my friends die? Why did we do all these terrible things in Afghanistan? Like what was the purpose? And I remember being at this uh, department of defense, dinner in san diego that, that my law firm shepherd mullen put together and they had a guest speaker mary walker this was this would have been like 2010 and mary walker was the former uh, attorney for the u.s air force she was the general counsel for the air force and she was obviously a very smart woman she gave this great talk and when it came time for questions i raised my hand i said mary you know i served in afghanistan in 2001 it was very clear we went over there after the September 11th attacks and our mission was, okay, destroy the training camps and try and hunt down and, and capture or kill bin Laden, but basically wipe out terrorism in Afghanistan. And we largely did that. And by the end of, you know, 2001 into the beginning of 2002, that aside from bin Laden, terrorism was like off the map in Afghanistan, Taliban was out of power. And I said, Okay, but after that, what my friends are there right now, and they, they're like these complex rules of engagement. They're getting investigated by NCIS after they're coming. They're like reloading magazines to go back out on a, on a, on a multi-hit night, and they're getting interrogated by the NCIS. Like, why did that guy get shot here? Why did he get shot there? I said, what is the strategic value 
of us being in Afghanistan and what's the plan? Like nobody seems to know what the hell we're doing there. And in 2010, Mary looked at me and she said, to be honest, I don't know either. And I was like, if you don't know, you're like in the inner circle of the White House, we're in big fucking trouble. And she's like, yeah, she's like, I get it. And these, it was like pin drop quiet because these defense executives who thought they put all this trust in the government, they realized, wow, we really don't have a plan. And then it carries on another decade. And then we end up with this disastrous pullout, which you can blame. People love to blame Biden. And look, you know, I'm not a huge Biden fan. Um, it, it seems like he has major neurological issues. Um, but I don't blame him for what happened in Afghanistan because he's not up moving army men in the middle of the night in the White House on the Afghan map. He's trusting his military leadership. And when you look at the composition of the current Joint Chiefs of Staff, I wouldn't trust those guys to like defend New York City in a riot. Like they're very incompetent. And the current senior leadership in the military is turned into a bunch of yes men. They pushed out great leaders like Stanley McChrystal, these people that would actually challenge and, and, and you know, challenge concepts. And so you end up with this bunch of yes men and, you know, and, and we end up in a situation where, where you and I probably could have planned a better pullout of Afghanistan. I mean, like 101, pull out the civilians first, then the military. And we did it the opposite, right? The military pulls out. All the civilians are like, wait for us. Uh, people are hanging off an airplane you know, landing gear, which is and falling to their deaths. Like it's just a disaster. But anyway, you know, the, you know, these conversations need to happen because we're, we're, and, and I do believe like you and I talked about in the beginning of the show, I think before we started recording was there is this, you know, there are people out there that are done choosing a side. Like they don't want to be put into this, like, ultra conservative bucket or this ultra liberal bucket. It's like, wait a minute, let's have this conversation because America is in big trouble and, and we need to have these talks and debate it out and figure out, you know, what the hell we're going to do with ourselves. And an organization that we started working with recently, Newsweek, I know the CEO, uh, Dev Pragad, they're proof that you can run a news organization and modern times that represent both sides and the middle because that's what they do and he took a lot of heat from the newsroom bringing in conservative writers to get a different viewpoint but newsweek from 2017 to 2021 has grown from 7 million users a month to over 100 million users a month they are very good and very profitable organization and, and we work with them because we're ethically aligned on how we deliver the news. Um, but anyway, my rant is, is over. <laughs> no, no, I, and this is what I love. I mean, you know, we've deviated completely from a normal kind of um, structure of questioning the timeline, but who cares, because this is a great conversation. With the Afghan, firstly, with us being there, I have heard the same thing. I, I'm, I'm certainly from SEALs, certainly from Green Berets, and I'm sure, you know, some Australian SES and other people that have that have, have, have kind of commented, but it seems to be the same thing. Go in, destroy the camps, 
kill Bin Laden if you can, and get out. And again, from a completely layman's perspective, I am not military, not even the Salvation Army, nothing. Um, you know, it's you don't have to be an idiot to figure out that if you stay in a country long enough, it becomes an occupation. Now you create more enemies than you have friends. So what is the the element of the industrial military complex in all this? When I look at the obesity epidemic and I look at the drug companies, I just finished watching Dope Sick. You talk, talk about OxyContin and, and the, the total unethical practices that happen oh, yeah. with that. So did, you, did you know that, and this is an important cause, we, we decided to pick up veterans' mental health. If a veteran, if a guy leaves the military, a guy or a gal, and enters the VA system, their chances of suicide go up 30 percentage points. Really? That's insanity to me. And that's a combination of bureaucracy, not getting the right help. And like I personally experienced, they will just throw opiates at you. You're in pain. Here's a freaking jug of Oxycontin. And it will just keep auto refilling and send out to your mailing address. It's a disaster. No, maybe they fixed it now. But when I was going through, no cross check. Like a doctor here would prescribe medicine, you go see another doctor, he prescribes, and it just automatically comes in the mail, and no one's like cross-referencing to see if this drug affects this drug. Um, it's a nightmare. Like it took me four years for them to admit that uh, my right leg was a cause of a skydiving accident. I had to actually go find my freaking skydiving log in storage and, and basically shame the VA into acknowledging that that it was a service-connected uh, injury but anyway that that's crazy our own va it's, it's like you touch the va which there's a lot of great people at the va but they know there are a lot of our sources for these stories we write on com is from people inside the va that do care and they're like yeah we're we're actually doing more harm than we're we're doing good but sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no that. no no well i want to get to the military complex but while we're just on that tangent so i've had Nick Norris, Dan Cirillo, Jeff Nichols, so many of the members of the, the SEAL community specifically, who, whether it was alcohol, you know, opiates, whatever their, their drug or combination of drugs of choice, were spiraling down to become yet another statistic, whether it was overdose or, or suicide. And they have to leave the United States of America to go to a different country to get psilocybin, ibogaine, you yeah. know, that seems to be having incredible effects, not only with the mental health side, but even with the TBI element because of our completely ass backward drug laws too. So, you know, and I hear this over and over again. You know, it's it's like you said there are great people in it, but this this system that we have and as, going back to to what I was saying before, I as a paramedic see I've had so many people that have died and my ugly mug was the last thing they saw and then the wife or the husband hands me this fucking laundry bag full of meds and they yeah. believe that those meds were going to keep them healthy. No, those meds just purely affected metrics in the doctor's office. It didn't make them healthy. It wasn't prevention. And I see the same thing, you know, sadly in the mental health side. Drugs are prescribed, but you're not addressing the root cause. And there are so many great therapeutics out there, but the education isn't there. And, you know, sadly, big companies don't, you know, they, they get wealthy from sick people. There's no money in healthy people or dead people. And the same in the mental health side. So, but I also see that back to my original question as a layman in war. If there are companies that are making billions while we're at war, 
then clearly there is a pull to keep us in war by certain lobbyists. Yeah, and that, that I, I think it was and is still a big problem in America. Um, it's, it's that defense machine, which I've worked for um, when I've, I got out of the SEALs in 2006 and did a startup, lost, lost everything. It was a disaster and ended up having to like part of picking myself up off the ground and dusting myself off. I went to work in the defense industry um, at L3. It was a great experience. I had a great boss. Um, she was an engineer that ended up becoming president of the division. And I saw how these people like really get behind, you know, supporting the country. They think they're doing all this good, but, but part of that is they're, you know, this, this cycle that happens where you have the lobbyists and these contractors, they're like, Oh wow, we're going into Iraq. Well, this is a huge opportunity to, you know, we can push, you know, thousands of these SATCOM radios and, you know, make hundreds of millions of dollars. So I've seen it and it's a lot of it's well intentioned, um, but it's, it's a, it's the, this, um, mechanism that needs to be fixed because you're right. It, it, you have also, I think the biggest thing that I would change is if you're a retired four star, you have a five year, uh, non-compete call it, whatever, whatever the hell you want to call it when you cannot work for a company in the defense industry. Cause here's how it works. Cause we, I saw this firsthand is a retired general would get courted by a, a SAIC, a Boeing, a Lockheed, an L3. Hey, come work for us. We're going to make you a, you know, VP or a, put you on the board. You're going to get a, you know, big paycheck. And then it's like, okay, how can you influence the contracting process for us? And so they're in there. They have very fresh relationships. They're, they're peers that they've kind of promoted up. They're like, hey, you know, use our radios or use our tanks, use our armored vehicles. And it just becomes, oh, and when, when you do this for me, I'll make sure you get the big job when you're out as well. So it becomes this, this cycle of defense spending and it influences decisions. And we end up in Afghanistan 20 years with, you know, something like a trillion dollars completely wasted. And, and I could think of a lot better ways to spend a trillion dollars than dumping it into a shithole like Afghanistan, which, you know, sorry to be, be, uh, <laughs> be frank, but, but Afghanistan was once a beautiful country. It is a war torn, ravaged landlocked country with very little strategic value to us. Aside from the fact now we've got a big, we've got a continued problem with, with, a terrorism element where, you know, China, which is very now cozied up to the Taliban has this basically venue to push domestic terrorism into India, which is part of their strategic plan to destabilize India. And now India has to worry about Afghanistan, Pakistan, and China on their border. And, you know, that's a big problem. India's, you know, we do a lot of trade with India um, they're one of the large, larger economies in the world. And so it, it will be a problem, not to mention the fact that because the U S regardless of whether we should have went into Iraq the second time, 
we, by pulling out and not having a plan, we've totally destabilized the Northern Arabian Gulf and pushed this massive refugee crisis into Europe. And now that resulted in Brexit. And you have uh, the European Union, which was trending towards open borders, now trending closed borders. Everyone's putting up fences saying, I don't want these refugees, they're a big problem. Um, and, and that's like America's doing, you know, we, we caused this massive refugee flow into Europe and, and it's because we really, we have for 20, 30 plus years have not put our really held our elected officials accountable. Um, everyone likes to point fingers and blame each other and what the hell, how, how do we let 20 years go by with, with with this foreign policy that's been all over the place like no rhyme or reason no one can no one can tell you i guarantee if you put every elected official in a different room in dc they you'd get a different answer of why what we're doing the last 20 years on this global war on terror well one common denominator that really just seems to come up over and over and over again and i'll go all the way back to slavery so you talked about white privilege and all this stuff and i'm just as nauseated to to hear this kind of Twitter generation that we have that just spout out two sentences like that's going to cover the entire thought process. But let's take slavery for a second. So some of my ancestors went to Africa and bought slaves, the British. During that time, Britain was going to one of its poorest you know times in history so the average person had no fucking idea that 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 was going on and sure as hell wasn't benefiting from it apart from maybe an unseen ripple effect but not not something that they signed up for you've got the same thing in africa these you know tribes are selling slaves i mean whether it's from you know enemy tribes or whatever it was and again i'm sure there was no benefit to most of them then they come over to the u.s they trade the slaves for you know tobacco whatever it was cotton and then the British go back with their hands clean, and then we're in the U.S. Well, again, you take your average person in the middle of the, the U.S. who's working their farm, who's a blacksmith, whatever it is, they're not benefiting from slavery. Meanwhile, this horrendous human atrocity is going on, and it's making the very few very wealthy. War makes the very few very wealthy. Tobacco makes the very few very wealthy. And each one of those things is at the expense of the lives of the masses in each of those countries. So this is what I see over and over and over again. And even, you know, like now, you have these masses fighting with each other. Meanwhile, the people that are making these decisions that benefit are laughing at this division. And that's what we've got to do, in my opinion, is fucking wake up and realize that if we all band together and call out these people that, you know, are poisoning our food. You know, farmers, you know, not, not the farmers themselves, but the people that own these mega farms, you know, are, are spraying the food that we are going to consume. They have to wear hazmat suits to do it. And then it goes in our children's food and we wonder why we have a cancer epidemic. So over and over and over again, it's the very few, you know, with, get, with power and with greed affecting the masses. And until we fucking figure out that we are the base of the pyramid and the pyramid should be upside down, this is going to happen over and over and over again. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a strange thing to think about, but I do see also America at risk for massive civil unrest. And, you know, you could even call it a, a revolution <laughs> without, with, uh, without being at risk of FBI knocking on my door. But 
it is it is something that has to be fixed like it's we're going to have to make these big changes and and i i struggle with you know as a business owner myself you know there are people i go that you know regardless whatever their life the environment and their life experience they just don't have it in them to start a business or they don't you know they want to live a different life so they're they're always going to be you know a large chunk of the bottom percentage that are just kind of happy doing whatever they want to do um so i i do struggle with like okay there there are a few that rise to these positions and, and kind of captains of industry but again you know i, I what encourages me is that you know belonging to the young presidents organization it's i think 26,000 of, of the world's global executives they are very aware that the world has problems with you know environmental issues um, income disparity you know healthcare issues education issues um, issues around food um, so i i am a little bit hopeful that that because industry has kind of woken up and I think that's why you see a lot of these bigger, bigger companies taking on these, these issues is because they know they have to. Um, so I, I am inspired by that, but I think, you know, if I had a magic wand, I would, I would for sure um, level the playing field of politics. Like we shouldn't have, I, I laugh when I see these politicians grilling, these big tech companies accusing them of monopolies and duopolies when the Republican and Democrat party are, is a massive duopoly. Like they control who gets to be president. Um, they gerrymander, they carve up these, these um, maps, you know, with these certain populations to their benefit so they can control certain districts Should just wipe, get rid of the gerrymandering, probably eliminate most of the lobbying um, and level the playing field on donations, vote by cell phone, and really like level the playing field of democracy. And I think we'd end up with a lot better candidates and people that would would want to serve because they now know that they could make a difference. But um, yeah, I don't have all the answers. Just try and do the <laughs> do the best I can. Uh, raise good kids. Um, you know our social cause at, at the company I run SoftRep, you know, it's meant it's veterans and mental health. Um, cause that's a big one. It's a big problem right now. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, we covered, we covered a lot of ground here. Yeah, no, we have, it's been brilliant. And it's, it's interesting because what you're talking about is something that I voice all the time. If you want a red flag, there's no greater red flag than 330 million people voting. And the last two that we get to choose from over and over again, you hear the phrase, the lesser of two evils. I mean, that says it all. That's mic drop right there, that our system is so broken. I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of Tulsi Gabbard, for example. And this last time, she didn't even stand a chance. But I think that she's really that kind of middle of the road, you know, walk softly but carry a big stick kind of leader that we need. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think really, you know, the last, the last election, right? Does Trump and Biden really represent the future of America? I don't think so. Like, they're so out of touch with, with reality. Um, <laughs> like, 
and we just get every four years we get another another crappy two choices because of these political parties and it's like oh whose turn is it now you know um so you know it's i I love that show succession on hbo and it you kind of get an idea of how it works the last the last season they show you know the how these kind of groups get together and figure out, okay, we're going to pick the next Republican candidate. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just crazy. So yeah, lot, we need lots of change, but I, I, I fear my biggest fear is that we have, we're in for a lot of civil unrest in the next couple of years in America because of what's happening. There's a lot of pissed off people that are tired of, of, you know, the, the healthcare, the healthcare system that, you know, costs $20,000 for an ambulance ride to the ER. And, and these parents are like, how am I going to pay for this? Um, so it's a big, we have uh, big, big problems to solve. Um, that's why, again, I'm a huge fan of Elon Musk. I'm like, it seems like he's very polarizing, but I'm like, the guy's doing a lot of good stuff for the world. Like, even that Joe Rogan interview with him was brilliant where he's like, yeah, I have other things that I'm interested in. I just, these are, are things that I, I am interested in and I think will be a benefit for society. And that's, you know, alternative energy, it's colonization of planets um, because we, you know, as, as a safety net, you know, and it's kind of take the pressure off of, off of uh, planet earth. Um, but yeah, the guy's doing amazing things. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near where we're at with, you know, getting off fossil fuels without a guy like Elon Musk. You know, we'd still be, you know, way, way in the, and probably he, he's pushed us forward uh, decades without him. We would just be still like filling her up. Yep. <laughs> <You know? clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know about the colonization of Mars because I feel that's a kind of like get out of jail free card for actually being in charge of the environment. <laughs> so let's, let's fix ours. I mean, I get that's a great, a great second option, but there is so much we can do with, you know, some of our budget to truly, you know, let's put the rainforest back in Brazil. Let's do all the, you know, fix all the damage that again, we've allowed the few to do. I mean, they've, they've raped and pillaged this planet to, you know, to I mean, think about the diamond industry. I mean, there's so much yeah. disease and death attributed to a few people getting very, very wealthy and they've, they've destroyed this planet, our air, our water, our soil. So, you know, there's a lot of damage we need to undo. And again, that's only going to happen if we all, even if you know, we vote with our dollar. I don't want your shitty chemical filled food anymore. <laughs> I want a yeah. local farmer to grow me organic food and we're not going to ship it 2,500 miles. We're going to buy it from Steve down the road. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's the biggest thing I notice when I go back and forth to Europe. I'm, I'm in Zurich right now uh, with my girlfriend, but the food over here tastes so good. Like it's just, you know, everything is, is, uh, grown, you know, mostly organically over here. We're organic now in the U S doesn't mean anything. Um, yeah, the food, I noticed the food taste is like the first thing I, I really, yeah, it makes a difference when I hop off the airplane. So I want to get to your naval career just for a moment, really just to talk about 
the men that you worked alongside that aren't with us anymore? Because, I mean, you, you've talked about your, your journey in other conversations, and so I want to kind of pull those out. Um, so firstly, talk to me about, um, you know, when you first met Chris Kyle and, you know, your relationship with him. Talk about the man a little bit. Sure. Um, so Chris, Chris was a new guy at SEAL Team 3 um, when I first met him. Um, you know, we had a lot of great guys on the team, um, you, including uh, Glenn Doherty, which, which you and Sean spoke about. Uh, when I, I got to really become friends with Chris, it was more after we both decided to leave because we were both, we were both chiefs. We both left kind of at a time where people were kind of in the mid, we were both kind of mid career and decided to leave just, I think. Uh, to be there more for our kids. Um, and we are both in the situation where we both were one of the first group of guys from the community to really kind of put ourselves out there and, and write a book. And we got a lot of flack from the community. Um, some guys were like, yeah, we get it and support you. Other guys were like, you're sellouts. We both, I don't think many people realize, even Latrell, took a lot of heat from the community. Um, and I think him and I got closer just talking about that and what that was like and, you know, kind of supporting each other in a small circle. Um, you know, I, when I was, I went from advanced sniper training at the Naval Special Warfare Training Detachment on the West Coast, uh, Training Detachment 1, uh, I got recruited to go down to the basic sniper program when I got there, he was just finishing up his sniper class and was deploying to Iraq. Uh, but I do remember him coming back. Um, we laughed about it because one of the, you know, we have the part of the special, Naval Special Warfare community. We have the, the special boat teams, which is now, I think, called SWIC. Um, we had a, there was a guy called down on speakerphone and he wanted to know what the requirements were. To, to sign up for sniper school. And he was one of these boat, boat driver guys. And I had it on speakerphone and Chris was in the office and, and I just, I, he's like, okay, I want to apply. What are the requirements? And I said, I said, buds, which is our seal training <laughs> pipeline and hung up the phone on him. And Chris and I had a laugh, um, laugh about it. Um, but yeah, you know, great guy. I think, um, you know, just totally tragic what happened to him. Um, you know, guy obviously cared about the, his fellow veteran community. You know, the, the mom of the guy that killed him really didn't. I, from what I know, she was a teacher at his kid's school and kept hounding Chris. Hey, can you hang out with my son? He's dealing with PTSD. Well, that wasn't the case. Her son was actually had never really, I think maybe wasn't in combat, deployed to a combat zone but was dealing with like severe mental illness. Like he had been institutionalized for threatening to kill his, his the, the wife or his mom and dad. Um, and had Chris known the full extent, I doubt he would have taken this guy to like a shooting range with the plan to have a few beers afterwards. He probably wouldn't have ne never put himself in that situation. So I really, it's a tragedy all around because the mom really sold a different situation. And the guy tried, you know, Chris died trying to help one of his fellow veterans. And I mean, a guy that's been deployed in the middle of, you know, Iraq and that intense urban 
kind of street to street warfare survives all that comes back gets killed at shooting range by a, a you know military veteran is just tragic um but great guy um you know can't say enough about chris um but yeah we we got to know each other more on on the outside than uh than we did uh inside the inside the seal teams well you touched on you know the veterans mental health and the transition out seems to be you know a, a struggle for anyone in uniform and for struggle for a lot of people but you know when you're a seal when you're a firefighter you know a lot of us identify as that and if we don't have that tr- that new tribe to go into, you know, we don't have that that kind of realization of the person inside the uniform. You know, often it it seems to be a very very different, uh, excuse me, difficult transition. In the the film, they obviously portrayed that that Chris was struggling, you know, with that transition himself. Was that something that you were aware of personally? Yeah, I think, you know, I think. Um the transition is, is tough. It, it's, you know, you're dealing with the identity issue. You're like, okay, how do I, how do I feed my family? Um, you know, the, the SEAL community, I've been pretty, a pretty vocal critic of our lack of leadership in the SEAL community. We, you know, when, and I, I, I was just like face palming myself a year ago when, when uh, the, the, Admiral, I think it was Pybus, said he sent out an all hands email to the SEAL community saying, I think we may have a cultural problem. This was after the Eddie Gallagher, very public Eddie Gallagher war crimes trial. And I was like, okay, I started thinking about all the incidents over the past 20 years where guys were, you know, being brought up on war crime charges, massive, you know, illicit drug abuse, like drug abuse with sex parties and it's just like the list goes on and on a whole seal platoon being sent home from iraq for drinking problems i'm like you think we have a culture problem like are you fucking crazy like and that showed it just shows how much the leadership is either out of touch um the the other the and this is the seals are amazing community like we have a tremendous history and rich history you know, dating back to the underwater demolition teams of World War II, you know, made it, had a great reputation in Vietnam. Um, and, you know, I, I look at a community that's just been overdeployed too many times, you know, the, the incentives were to deploy to make rank when really they, they should have say, hey, if you want to make rank, you need to take a break, take care, spend some time with your family. Um, and we don't have a, an alumni outside of the seals we have this reunion which is basically an excuse to get drunk over a, a, over a weekend once a year and it's it's a it's a terrible environment and i look at that in contrast i i fly as a passion and i fly with this group of pilots from the air force and navy and they have a great alumni a great support network when they get out they take care of each other we don't have that in the seal teams it's dog eat dog it's trash talk each other on social media. You know, it's, it's the leadership. I remember hearing my, a really good friend of mine who worked at the, the SEAL command war comp. He's like, yeah, I saw this PowerPoint slide. Um, this was the time when the SEALs were getting a lot of publicity. They weren't 
they weren't liking, right? The Bissonette book on No Easy Day and, and all this stuff was happening. And um, they guys got investigated for, for potentially stealing the Captain Phillips ransom money that went missing off the boat. Like all this crap, like, which is out there. You can Google it. It's just, it was at a time when America did, really didn't want to read about their heroes doing this stuff. And Warcom is briefing like the problem with the SEAL reputations. And they put up on the slide, Marcus Luttrell, Chris Kyle, myself. And I was just like shocked. I'm like, you really think we are the problem? Like we're out representing the community in a positive way, trying to make a better life for ourselves. And you think we're the problem with the SEAL brand image? I was like, how about the guys that got the whole platoon that got sent back, you know, for alcohol abuse? You know, that's like the stuff, the, the drugs, the war crime, all this stuff. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like you guys have a major cultural issue. They, when I was a, I had just been promoted to E6. Um, I got capped. I was the number one promoter in command. So I got instantly promoted. And I remember my boss at the time was going through a nasty divorce. He got hooked on drugs and he popped on a drug test and they, they hit him away. And I remember thinking to myself back then, like, this is a really bad signal to send to the rest of the community. Now I fast forward, you know, to 14 years, I'm at this Harvard program learning about behavioral psychology and organizations and realizing what a really bad signal it was because you're signaling to guys, oh, well, he's a good operator. We can let him slide. You can't do that. You have to freaking hand, drop the hammer down to maintain order and discipline. You can't have guys going, doing all sorts of crazy fucking drugs when they're on active duty status. There has to be an, some accountability there. And it just, the problem is that was the, the crack you know, in the, in the foundation that just, that ended up getting much worse and worse. And then 20 years later, you have this admiral saying, Oh, I think maybe we have a, a cultural issue in the SEAL teams. Like, no, it started a long time ago. Um, so the, the problem with the SEAL community, great community, you have a few excellent leaders like McRaven, but uh, largely I would, I would put it on a, a massive you know, senior enlisted and officer leadership failure of, you know, the current state of the community. And you can just Google, Google some of the topics I've mentioned, and you will find a lot of stuff out there on this. Um, and, you know, you look at with this, is this a standard of excellence for an organization when you got have, have a community that's plagued with drug issues, domestic violence, uh, suicide, uh, war crimes, like killing women and children on target. Um, this is, this is not, this is a problem, right? That just never was addressed. It's just starting to be addressed now. Um, and I, I used to really, you know, blame the individuals. And I look at it's a, it's actually this, this machine that's just put them in, and just ground their their humanity away deploying like 15 20 combat deployments that's insanity um and i i feel for these guys and i really take issue with the leadership that created this this the incentive structure to have these guys deploy over and over and over again and you know we're 
my friend that was at SEAL Team 6 said they were doing experimental injections in the brainstem when these guys, I don't even know what the hell they were getting injected with, but just so these guys could like sit at the dinner table and have a normal conversation with their family and not freaking go off the deep end. And, and that's how we treat America's heroes, you know, on the front lines. Um, and, and so this, you know, I can only speak from my experience with the SEAL community. You know, I, I hope the community really gets its act together because it is a, an incredible community with a rich history. And, and we do like, you know, the British, our British SAS and SBS brothers, the SEALs do provide a very much needed maritime special operations capability. Um, but it's time to kind of really look and have a hard look in the mirror at ourselves in the community, because we back to your initial question on the transition, there's no help, man. It's you, maybe a couple buddies that you're close to, um, and you just gotta make, you gotta make, uh, make the best of it because you're on your own. There's no support system, and like I said, you go to the VA, you're just you're in the meat grinder there as well. So, um, big, big problems that need to be solved in in the SEAL community, um, and it starts with leadership, putting the right incentives in place. Um, you know, you 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 have to look at these signals. You know, hiding a guy away that pops on a drug test that breaks Navy clear UCMJ violations. Um, you you have to if you hide them out, that sends a signal to the entire community. And that's a bad signal. Um, as and, and there were many many incidents like that that I witnessed um, and on the inside and the outside. So um, anyway, my hope is that somebody will start a really, um, you know, good alumni network for the, for the SEAL community and maybe the, maybe the overall special operations community. Cause now it's, it's really hyper, you know, you take that same alpha male hyper competitiveness in the outside world and you got guys that don't want to help each other. They're just like, no, this is my turf, my territory. I, I, I've got this, you know, shooting school and I don't want you to have any part of it, or I've got this and, you know, I'm, you know, I've written a few books and, you know, I'm not helping anyone else. So it's just, that's the, that's the, the reality of the situation. And it's harsh. I don't think I've ever really vented like this before, but it's just like, I care about the community. Um, and I've seen guys like try and drag me down. i you know, I had a, a really good career that I'm proud of. And I, you know, you don't get early promoted twice and get put in charge of the sniper program if, if you don't have your shit together. But I see guys that, some guys that actually got kicked out for performance of drug issues who have a big Instagram following, you know, shitting on myself and Chris Kyle and, and Marcus Luttrell. And I'm just like, Jesus, man, this is insanity. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but anyway, I, I hope, I hope we do, you know, the leadership in the military really does a better job of, of, uh, in the special operations community of, of kind of creating a more collaborative environment and keeping the community 
the active duty and the and the alumni more c- better connected because there there are best practices and models for it out there. I, I belong to a great Harvard Business School alumni community. There we have a you know we have a secretary, we have an event planner, we have you know it's just like all this great things, and we don't have that in the SEALs or the special operations that I, that I know of. Well, it's interesting the parallel, and it's funny because if you look at my library of of guests, there's a there's a huge amount of seals on there, and it's not that you know I seek them out initially. I think Stu Smith was the very first one I had on, um, who you know again tactical training, strength and conditioning, um, you know is definitely one of the gurus in that area. But uh, this the parallels between special operations, special forces, and first responders is is so so profound. So. You know, what's great is when you guys write books, you know, we learn, we get better as well. And I think, you know, the public need to know what police, fire, military do for them. But when it comes to what you're talking about, I always say in the fire service, you know, we have a, a horrific, you know, mental health issue. We have an addiction issue. You know, people may not think about illicit drugs, but you look at alcoholism in fire and police, it's horrendous. Take the grinder, take the drill ground, take the, you know, the diamonds, that is an incredible group of men and women that are mentally and physically resilient. You always have the outliers, a little chunky one that made it through somehow. But overall, you know, that's a very, very, you know, elite group of people. Fast forward 10, 15 years, um, you look at the average firefighter, the average police officer. They are a shadow of themselves. Yeah. And I talk about this a lot and I call out administrations and I call out unions. We have a supposedly one of the best unions in in America and our f- men and women in uniform, especially our fire service, are working 56-hour weeks minimum for 25, 30 years, you know, and we're, we're literally killing them. This podcast was started after fucking six funerals, you know, burying yeah. my friends. Yeah. So if you have all these issues in the SEAL teams, that tells me that the rest and recovery element, you know, is, is absent. The mental health um, counseling element is absent or, or lacking the same way as it is in police in fire. And just like you were saying, when we transition out, the, the door closes behind us and that's it. There's no there's no medical. It doesn't matter if you fucking got destroyed physically and mentally in your career. As soon as that, that door hits the concrete, tough shit. You're not even including statistics. You could drop dead the next day and you won't even be in the fire statistics. So, you know, at, as far as organizationally, I know exactly what you're talking about. And we are killing our men and women in uniform the way we work them, whether it's in police fire and obviously in your case in, in the SEAL community. Yeah, it's, and look, you know, I'm sure I'm going to take a bunch of shit for sharing what I did, but I'm, I've been talking about this stuff for a while now. And I remember maybe eight, seven, eight years ago, a really good friend that I respect from the community, a great officer that but ended his career early, um, has a great organization down in Southern California putting guys through, through training. Um, he came to me and he's like, why are you doing this? Why, why are you sharing our inner issues with the world? And I'm like telling this guy, I was like, look, I get it. I get, cause there was this, I remember being, when I was in this community, it's like, Oh, we just deal with it ourselves. Keep it inside, keep it inside the family. But I was telling him like, this is getting out of control. Like it's one thing if, things were being done to fix it, but nothing's being done. Like, and if we don't talk about this, how are we going to like create pressure on the organization to change it? You know, cause obviously it's not being fixed. Um, and, and so, yeah, and 
and and then you you know clearly like there's I forget a couple of years ago these guys came out on uh they did this anonymous interview with one of the news stations in LA and they're like yeah we the community's got a big problem right now so it you know guys are going to have to start speaking up and internally um, you know trying to hold get some accountability and and really get our culture back cuz in the seals we've clearly like drifted way off course um, but yeah you got to talk about this stuff and and it's uncomfortable you know guys in my community won't want to hear me saying this stuff cuz they're like why you you got to protect the trident you know <laughs> air, air quote protect the trident I'm like well i gave that a shot and that's not working that's not working for the community um and i'm proud of the seal community in in the history and 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 the, the time i was in but um you know if i didn't care i wouldn't talk about it and so i my hope is that you know we really the leadership you know looks at you know the culture that we've created and and you know i studied culture and organizations at harvard business school and you have these organizations with great culture great accountability great incentive systems in place um and and then you have like take for instance we could talk about it in in um, the sense that most people identify with look at the US airline industries look the experience you get flying southwest versus united airlines very very different experience one is a very good culture they treat their employees well everyone's happy customers get treated well and the other you're dragging people off airplanes and, and killing pets in overhead compartments like it's a very different experience um, and so you know you look at how to build culture in organizations you have to send clear signals there has to be accountability there has to be good leadership um, so i hope we get it back in the seals you know as far as you know you said you started this podcast putting six people in the ground i mean i started um, the Red Circle Foundation, which is a you know it's a small nonprofit, primarily because when Glenn was killed, Glenn Doherty in Benghazi, after he was him and his you know casket and his family were paraded around the, the White House and talked about an American hero. When when the news media died down, the 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 reality was Barbara, his mom, had something like fifty thousand dollars in debt for funeral expenses. Uh, the government paid zero death benefit. The insurance company that that the CIA had mandated that these guys carry a minimum of a million dollars life insurance. Um, but there is this little fine print that said if you didn't have a spouse, the policy wouldn't pay out. So now there's life insurance that the government said you have to have this, you have to pay for it, knowing that it would never pay out in Glenn's situation. So I was like, this is, this is messed up. Like, how does this happen? And so I started the foundation to cover emergency medical and funeral expenses for other families that were in the same situation. And I give Sean and, um, and Glenn's sister a lot of credit. They went to talk to the CIA director, Brennan, and had this big meeting. You know, it took them years. Um, because of this life insurance issue, it turns out that over 300 other families were in a similar situation since the 1980s, um, where they were contracting for either the State Department or the CIA, and 
they died in service and the family's got nothing. Um, and, you know, they went into the story, as I know it, that Sean, I'm recollecting what Sean told me was they went into the Brent, director Brennan's office and some admin person was there, had the insurance policy and said, look, look here, you can see right here. It says that if, if you didn't have a spouse, then they, the policy just doesn't pay. And they're like, well, how can you have a policy and mandate that these guys have to pay for this, knowing it was never going to pay out? And then Sean was like, look, you can sit there and tell me what the contract says, but what's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. So they basically shamed the CIA. And to Brennan's credit, they, they said, you're right. And they ended up getting, I think, half a million uh, paid out for these 300 plus family members back to the 1980s and the Beirut embassy bombing. And, and so they, there was a lot of good that came out of that situation. But I talk about being so frustrated that, you know, our government can't even take care of a, this hero that had been like, you know, f- talked about in the media and the white house and family flew family through the white house. Everyone's like, Oh, you're from multi-parties, Democrat and Republican. Oh, your son's a hero. We're going to take care of everything, blah, blah, blah. And once they had their press moment, you know, the reality was government wasn't taking care of shit. <laughs> so, you know, his friends and I had to pay the, you know, Sean and myself and some other friends kicked in and paid for the funeral expenses. Um, but that's what got me, you know, involved in the nonprofit world. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a tragedy, but I think, you know, like I said before, you know, we're at a place in America where we do have to kind of pull up our socks and and realize it's going to take podcasts like this, people starting nonprofits, raising issues, like doing the work themselves. We can't just sit back and, expect to pay our taxes and that government is going to solve our problems. It's not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, speaking of, of Sean, so obviously Sean told some uh, Glenn stories. I'd, I'd actually watched uh, the the film a, f- a few months prior and then I watched it again after the conversation with Sean, understanding some of who Glenn was. And I, I'll be honest, I was sobbing watching it the second time because it was a little more personal. I was, it was taken from that fictional element where I was the guy from the office. That's not real to, you know, really being able to put myself in that position a little bit more mentally. So talk to me about Glenn Doherty, who he was. And I know you ended up writing a book on Benghazi. So what are some of the, the areas that, that we should know? Because again, immediately those two camps formed. And I think the actual, you know, the storytelling of that was never understood by the people because you just had two teams throwing rocks at each other again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, Glenn, I, I as part of my, my transition and dealing with a lot of grief, losing, losing some friends, I decided to write this book among heroes, which was, you know, I figured out, okay, I, how do you write a book about dead friends and and not have it be depressing? Right. So I, I took what I realized was that these, the reason I wanted to write a story about these guys is because they had such a positive impact on my life. And I said, that's the story I have to tell, like how, and then Glenn ended up dying. I'd never imagined he would be in the book. Um, but I, I write about him and among heroes. And, you know, the, the thing that really impacted me from, from Glenn's friendship is I truly considered him one of my closest friends. And what I realized 
was when he died was that he had probably four or five people that were in that tight inner circle. Like, and that's unusual for somebody to maintain that kind of intimate relationship with somebody. And then I realized, wow, he's got that with Sean. He's got that with, you know, if you, this Shane and Mike and these other guys, Glenn was just, he was one of those few people that he would have been a great politician because I, I, I've never met a guy, a person that would talk negatively about Glenn. He was just this positive ball of energy. So fun to be around. You know, when we're on road trips, he's always flipping through his little black book, staying in touch with friends, maintained a massive social, social circle. And again, humble that his funeral, we, we rented, you know, we did the funeral for his mom, Barbara, because she wanted that. But Glenn specifically in his will said, no funeral. I want a, a BFP, big fucking party. So we threw down. I think we spent, you know, we had a lot of stuff donated. And, and, and we rented out the Del Mar racetrack in San Diego and threw this massive party. And, like, thousands of people showed up. I, I was, like, blown away, like, uh, at how, how Glenn had impacted so many people in his life. But it's just a testament to the to the person he was and, and the social butterfly that he was as well, but such a great guy. Um, and Glenn to me was like, you know, it was like having a suit of armor on as him as a friend, and, you know, and, and sir, especially when I wrote, when I wrote the red circle, he was just like, no, Brandon's a great guy. You don't know him. I serve with him. Like he was, he was just that type of friend that would stick up for you and people would instantly go, okay, I get it. And just like back off. Um, but yeah, one of the, one of the most amazing, uh, human beings I've ever had a chance to, to, to meet and connect with. And, um, just so many good stories with Glenn, you know, we were both, we both share a love for aviation and so many flying stories together. Um, I remember, um, I, I'd saved my dad's life when I was 17. Um, I rescued him. Um, he was in trouble on a scuba diving trip. And I grew up working in the industry and, and was a rescue diver. And, um, it's a strange place as a 17-year-old kid to, to kind of save your tough guy, hero dad's life. Um, and we didn't talk about it. And I remember um, years later, my dad was living in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And Glenn and I both loved to ski. And we were on a ski trip together with some friends. And because Glenn is also a paramedic, um, he started talking about like life-saving stories and we're at the lodge drinking beers after a day on the ski hill. And my dad, you know, because of Glenn, um, shared the story of me saving his life and he broke down in tears and was like, you know, I just, I got to share this with you guys publicly and my son saved my life. And we, and it was just like one of those moments and we all kind of, you know, high fived and had a beer and, and, uh, you know, so many of those, those, moments um and stories i've had with glenn but and the guy was extremely talented i remember we went through snipers training together we were two new guys in golf platoon at seal team three and our chief dan called us in the office said hey you guys are the top shooters in the platoon i'm sending you to sniper school and at the time you guys didn't get to go to that school so we were excited and terrified because he's like don't mess up you know <laughs> and i remember Glenn and I had graduated the shooting phase and we had to get through stocking. And I had, I picked up stocking really quickly. I struggled with some of the shooting stuff 
um, was really good on the spotting scope. Um, and I remember Glenn's like, man, I'm really hurting my stocking score. You know, you got to help me out here. And so I would like spend extra time with them. And even on one of the stocks, you know, I'm like, okay, just follow me here. And he's like, no, 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 that's too risky. And, and come to find out when they publish our scores, I'm like, I was like number one and he was number two. I was like, you fucker, like, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not hurting at all. Like you're like right on my tail for the number one spot, but he's such a perfectionist. Um, and, uh, you know, as a medic, just, you know, there's two types of medics in the seals, you know, the ones that you don't want to see cause they, they don't, they have no sympathy, no bedside manner. They're just going to tell you to suck it up and, and take, take them 800 Motrin. Um, but Glenn was the opposite. Like you knew you're getting like great. He just cared about people. Um, but Jag, yeah, I mean, great. I can't say enough good things about the guy. And tragically, you know, we had talked about this was going to be his last deployment with the agency and he wanted to really come back. He was tired of it. He just broke up with a, got out of a bad relationship. And, you know, it was like, I, and he could have, he had already been to Benghazi. He could have had his choice of any location, you know, Bogota, Israel, some really good assignments. He said, no, I need to go back here. Cause I know the guys need me. I have experience and the place is kind of a mess right now. So he just felt this like obligation to his teammates there. And, and it just, again, and, and what he does in the movie speaks, speaks to his character could have just safely stayed out of the fray, um, but went back and put his life on, on the line um, to help, to help out his team. And uh, yeah, that's just the kind of guy Glenn was. And what about the situation itself, the lack of support? You know, what, what should the, the people know about what actually happened there? So, I mean, we covered the situation extensively, which was tough for me because I was so close for it. But, but you know, running softrep.com, you know, we covered defense and foreign policy news. And we had a bunch of sources come forward and and so I felt like I really have an understanding of what happened there. The, the 40,000 foot view and, and the reason Benghazi was such a disaster is, you know, first of all, Tripoli is the capital of Libya, not Benghazi. But Benghazi was a city where the power brokers were, the, the militia, heads of the militias, all the powerful people were in Benghazi. So that's why, you know, the State Department had a, a, an outpost there. The CIA had a base there. And was also a nasty part of part of Libya. Um, you had a the tier one unit, which I believe was uh, I don't I can't remember if it was Delta Force. I think it was I think it was six. So you have three these three entities in Benghazi plus the Brits. The Brits are there, and everyone's trying to sort out what's going on. You have um, the CIA doing what they do. They recruit assets or spies. They gather information and, and try and, you know, I think f from what I know, they were trying to get, there was some loose, um, you know, WMV um, or uranium in the area. They were trying to like get in, intel and collect this stuff. Um, and they were involved in like pushing weapons to Syria to kind of, when that, that civil war was going on, there was some involvement uh, with that. Um, then you have the state department, which is trying to promote diplomacy. 
um, which was Ambassador Stevens. Then you have this tier one unit, which is executing a presidential kill list or hit list. And what, what was happening was the CIA, the CIA assets. So they're hiring, they're getting into bed with these, you know, sometimes the CIA doesn't always partner with the best of characters, right? But it's about influence and information. So they've got a couple guys, very wealthy guys on the payroll. And, and then those same guys on the CIA payroll are getting hit. They're getting like their door kicked in the middle of the night because they're on some presidential hit list and the, you know, tier one guys are taking them out. So it's creating confusion and resentment against the Americans because these militia leaders like, wait a minute, I thought this guy would, you know, we were cooperating and we're getting killed. Our door's getting kicked in. So it kicked off this like hornet's nest um, and nobody's talking to each other. We're back to our kind of situation pre 9-11 where no one wanted to share information. The CIA had to like get a signature, you know, a courier sign that they actually, the State Department had received their information because they were you know, there was this like back and forth going on in this, you know, rivalry of information sharing. And, and so it just became a total shit show. And, you know, it, when, you know, the state department knew that they were like in a very unsecure compound, they're basically in a, a, a walled mansion with a, with a local guys guarding the exterior perimeter and the Department of Defense or the State Department contractors on the inside kind of monitoring things. Um, they knew the situation was getting much, much worse. The British pulled out. I think the ambassador took an RPG round through his, through his car, and it was so close the warhead didn't – the head of the RPG didn't spin enough to activate, so it just went clean, clean through the vehicle. They're like, we're out of here. Um, State Department sent in – message traffic like please help us like we're we're in big trouble the last entry of steven's diary which we published on the site said never ending security threats dot 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 um and they got completely overwhelmed and the first thing they did was call the cia guys and the chief of base which is a total coward who ended up getting a big promotion or an award out of this whole thing refused to help the, you know, I think Ty was the, one of the senior guys on the GRS, Ty Woods, the other seal was like, no, we need to go get these guys. If we do not get, get them, they're going to be all dead. And we're a mile, I think less than a mile away. We need to go help. So against orders of the chief of base of the CIA, they went and were enabled enabled they laid down enough fire to kind of get the state department people out by that time ambassador the, the compound was burning the ambassador ended up suffocating with the fire with the smoke um they got everyone out except the ambassador back to safety um and then you know while all this was going on glenn had just flown in country and he was down in I think in Tripoli with two, um, I think there were Delta guys that were waiting to go up north and they just decided to kind of bribe their way onto the flight to get up there and help and ultimately saved everybody because the I think the Delta guys had access to a Predator drone. Um, and when they, you know, they pulled back to the CIA compound, um, the Predator drone overhead, one of the 
the Delta guys was basically saying this is getting worse because they had to, they had now eyes on the ground from up above and they could see like the, the mob moving from this, the state department compound over to the CIA base. And, and then they started taking mortar fire. And, and that was when Glenn and, and Ty were on the roof top and took a direct hit and both died. But the Glenn and those Delta guys initiative and having that predator drone gave them a situational awareness on the ground to go, we need to get everyone out of here and evacuate, which, which is what they did. And everyone got evacuated safely. In the meantime, it was a total, just a, you know, this kind of he shed, she shed, and no one knew. And look, you're not going to just, if you don't have the full information on what's going on on the ground, no military commander is just going to send troops blindly. So it was by no fault of the military. Just they didn't know what the hell was happening in it. And it was evolving so quickly. And and you're in the situation where the CIA and State Department don't like to share information anyway. And there's this tension that exists between these agencies and the military um, already. Um, and so, yeah, by the time that they figured out what was going on, it was just too late. And that's, you know, to the best of my knowledge is, is what kind of happened. Um, and the tragic thing about Benghazi and Afghanistan, zero accountability. Like who goes, you know what? I fucked that up. You know, zero accountability. No one took accountability for Afghanistan. No one took accountability for Benghazi. And that's, that's also a dangerous situation to be in, in America where, our elected leaders uh, have zero accountability. Absolutely. Uh, it's a big, a big problem. But anyway, yeah, tra- tragic. And on top of all that, you know, these guys, you know, Glenn and Ty, had, up until, you know, the families went after the government and shamed them into paying, paying some type of death benefit. But, um, yeah, the whole thing is, was tragic and unnecessary because really – you know, Benghazi or Libya is still a failed state to this day. And why did we encourage and help the toppling of, of Gaddafi, who was largely like cooperating with, with America at this, at this point in time? Um, again, we just, we just created a mess and, and who's left to clean it up. Like it's just a, it's a disaster. Yeah, well, you mentioned self-rep. So, you know, as again, something I've talked about a lot, I'm a big fan of the BBC up till recently. I, I think sadly they've bought into the whole fear mongering with COVID like so many countries yeah. have. Um, but, you know, and being, being very clear, it's very, very much a real virus. But, you know, again, all focus on, on the fear element and no focus on let's build healthier communities element. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I digress. But, you know, getting that middle of the road real reporting is 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 so hard to find i think that you mentioned podcasting not referring to mine specifically but i think the podcasting world is doing a great job i think the documentary world is really thriving now as well so why did you start soft repping and tell me kind of you know what what kind of uh perspective are you offering on that site sure so initially i was running a blog on the side for military.com uh, it was a men's like gun and gear blog and anytime i told the story or interviewed one of my buddies the traffic just blew up so this is in 2012 
11, 12. And I, I was like, wow, there's all this interest in this world and really no outlet on the, on the internet. Um, the movies and the books were out there in the video games, but really nothing on the internet. There's a few like forums where if you weren't like a cool military guy, you got yelled at and these guys ran away. <laughs> so um, I started SoftRep as just a military culture blog. And then it just morphed into a news site overnight because the writers I had on were realizing that mainstream media all over the place, all over the world and on you know, conservative media, liberal media, were just getting it wrong. They were just call up their buddy and it was serving in at some remote post in Afghanistan and be like, yeah, that's not the way it happened. Here's what happened. So we started breaking news and I started getting calls from the New York Times and NBC and all these other outlets, CNN, BBC, like, who are you guys? And they were trying to like figure out how they get in, like, how are you guys breaking news? Like, um, and so I found myself trying to figure out, okay, how do I, I never went to journalism school. What do we stand for? Um, and so we just initially try to just do the right thing and tell the truth, like be biased towards the truth. Um, and, and then over, you know, having made many mistakes um, over the, you know, I, I'd say the biggest mistake um, was that it was kind of like how we deliver the news. Sometimes it was just brutally harsh, right? Like we put this Niger video out and we should have like been a little more sympathetic to the families and kind of laid the groundwork rather than just push this video out. And, and actually I woke up to this shitstorm of this Niger video. I, I didn't even realize it was being pushed out. So that was another thing. Okay. We need a publishing board. So now like we, we have a publishing board. We decide is this, you know, and is this juice worth the squeeze, right? Are we, are we going to put ourselves in the, in the line of fire? Is it worth it? And so, you know, over the years we had to really develop some, some news editorial ethics, which we have in place now, but our, our core mission to kind of deliver the news straight and with a bias towards the truth that hasn't changed. And, you know, we could have went full bonkers and, and went on either side of the spectrum, but probably if we had a chose to go full, you know, Fox news, we probably would have a bigger audience, um, a bigger business, but it's just not who I am. Um, and I'm, you know, still the CEO and publisher today. Um, and I do think people are, are kind of worn out. They're tired of, of just knowing they're just getting this certain spin on things. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of soft rep where it's at today. And then we really narrowed down our focus as well. Like we're, we're defense news, defense tech, foreign policy and military culture. Like that's, that's what we do. Um, our podcast is mostly around military culture. We have the, you know, the guys like Rob O'Neill shot Bin Laden on and talk about their experience. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's done well. It's eight years plus old. Now we're, we're at, you know, a million and a half visitors a month. We should grow to 4 million this year because we have a pretty aggressive growth strategy. Um, you know, our, our podcasts have been bigger at times. We just hired a new really good host. Um, this guy, Aaron Rad, who's an air force vet. His dad was a green beret. 
um, is a great host. Um, but yeah, it's a good business. And, and I do like what the fact that what we do does make a difference. We've, we've triggered congressional investigations, military investigations um, into, into kind of issues that were previously unknown. Um, within the VA, the Army, the, the SEAL teams, um, you know, we've worked with most of the major news outlets um, and, you know, we have a close relationship now with Newsweek for the m- main reason they are, they are taking a, a you know, they, they don't call it the middle. They say, look, we represent all viewpoints, which I like, but um, that's what I, I really like working with that organization because they're very smart on the digital uh, delivery of content and news, but they're also, they have this ethic around, you know, getting back to real journalism, which I think largely been lost to this like news entertainment. Um, but yeah, that, that software, I'm, I'm proud of what we do over there. We have a, we have a great team. Um, it's been a long, long journey and a, a lot of learning <laughs> that's happened, but we're in a good spot today. And, and I think we're going to, we're going to do a lot of good in the future. Well, Brandon, I'm, I want to be mindful of your time, so I want to let you go. But before I do, um, you've written a host of books. Your most recent ones are Total Focus and Steel Fear. So tell everyone where they can find the books and then where they can find SoftRep and any other areas online you'd like to direct people towards. Yeah, I think if they just go to my, my author website, they'll find it all. Um, and that's just my full name, brandontylerweb.com. Uh, you'll find the books, you'll find the social media, um, you know, SoftRep, um, just SoftRep.com, stands for Special Operations Forces Report. Um, and yeah, the, the last book, you know, I, I did, um, the guy I write with John and I decided to uh, take about 25% of a book that I had started writing on my own, a novel. Um, before I was a SEAL, I was a search and rescue swimmer in helicopters on an aircraft carrier. Um, I did a tour on the Abraham Lincoln and the Kitty Hawk on the Lincoln. We had a sexual predator on the boat who assaulted um, these multiple women and was never caught. So I had the story idea. Wow. If it was this Hannibal Lecter kind of on a, on a big aircraft carrier, which is, you know, 6,000 person floating city, what would that be like? So I, I started writing that and John came in and helped me finish it. And then we realized we have a series, which is the, it's the Finn. Finn is our main character. Uh, Finn X, because he has, doesn't have a last name. But that that's turned into a, a really exciting series for us that we're we're getting close to uh, um, turning into a streaming series. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's it's funny. Um, you can have a lot more fun in the world of fiction and make believe and actually talk about stuff that you you want to talk about but maybe can't put in a nonfiction book. <laughs> Because you'll violate a, you know, non-disclosure security agreement. But um, yeah, it's exciting. Um, we book two drops in June. Cold fear in the steer in the series that takes place in Iceland, and we have this like seal versus seal scene in there. That's like at the end of the book, it's like a fight to the death, kind of like a no country for old men, kind of just brutal, you know, brutal fight sequence um in, in the last chapter of the book but that series is exciting you know we've we've got we realize we've got our, our our own version of like jason Bourne on our hands so 
we're excited about that. Brilliant. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, you know, we didn't even get really into your career, into your, you know, your journey into the military, sniper training, any of that stuff. So, like I said, if, if you're up for it, I'd love to do a part two, you know, down the road sometime. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's been, you know, so much great conversation. And the thing is, when we hear people like yourself, who have walked the walk, who have seen the highs and seen the lows. It's so important that the rest of us get to hear that perspective. So I just want to say thank you so much for, for you know, your transparency and, and your storytelling today. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I'm happy to come back. Mm-hmm.